recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 14th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we're going to present an article which ran in the 1996, May 1996 issue of the Barnes Review. The article is entitled, The 1933 International Boycott of Germany, The Execution, The Execution of the Boycott. Why do I do this? I do this because I understand, and and I realized this long ago in my own Christian identity studies, that the truths about 20th century history, the causes behind World War I, World War II, the true nature of National Socialism and Adolf Hitler's Germany, the forces behind the United States of America and Great Britain, which compelled those nations to destroy our own German kindred. The last step in understanding biblical truth is understanding that history. The last step in understanding the mystery of iniquity is understanding that history. The people who refuse to examine World War II, who claim to be Christian identity, those people, they don't have it. They don't have the whole truth. They don't seek the whole truth. They are not there. They're just not there. Their awakening is not complete. We must put away our Anglo-American pride and understand that our fathers were whores for international Jewry who destroyed white nations, great white nations, on behalf of Satan, on behalf of the Jew. We're all familiar with the... um, the Daily Express article, I mean, it's a pretty famous image. Judea declares war on Germany. It ran in a March 1920, uh, I'm sorry, March 24th, 1933, Daily Express. There's a copy of, that, there's a copy of part of the image on my Conf website at Christagenia. I have the whole one. I've been slow to put it up. Judea declares war on Germany. Jews of all the world unite. Boycott of German goods. Proclaimed headlines in the London Daily Express, March 24, 1933. The whole of Israel throughout the world is uniting to declare an economic and financial war on Germany. The mass circulation, British newspaper goes on in its front page to report to tell readers about the international boycott campaign. And of course, the Jews are not Israel. This Jewish war on Germany was launched even before Hitler's new National Socialist government had enacted its first anti-Jewish law. And the article announces that all Israel, of course, that's a lie, all Israel is rising in wrath against the Nazi onslaught on the Jews. 
resolutions are being taken throughout the Jewish business world to severe, to sever trade relations with Germany. Germany is a heavy borrower. This is quoting from the article. In foreign money markets where Jewish influence is considerable, a concerted boycott by Jewish buyers is likely to involve great damage to the German export trade. And I'm sorry about the feedback. That's nothing that's happening here. This economic war declared on Germany by world Jewry, we shall find out, presenting this article, had nothing to do with the Jews inside Germany. It had everything to do with the international Jews and the bankers wanting to destroy Germany and prevent Germany from practicing its right of self-determination. That's the bottom line. A free Germany is a danger to the Jew. And it couldn't happen. Tonight I have once again Sword Brethren here with me, and he will help us present this article. Hello, Brian. Hello, how are you tonight? Wonderful, thank you. Praise Yahweh. I can't help the feedback. I don't know where it's coming from. I'm using the same equipment, the same scheme I use every night. It only happens on occasional programs with you. I, I, I don't know. I can't help it. Do you have any opening remarks? Well, a lot of people in CI, well, I won't say a lot of people, and I, I won't even say CI, certain segments and sects claiming to be CI have taken to trashing National Socialism and Hitler. They've, I, I won't name names. They know who they are. They've vilified us at one time or another for trying to not suffice CI. And whether they know it or not, whether it's willingly, unwittingly, whether they're just ignorant and stupid and naive, they're doing the work of the Jew. Since if, if we accept the standard claptrap nonsense that they teach in schools that Hitler was the worst dictator and tyrant in the history of the world and America made the world safe for democracy and, you know, God bless America and God save the Soviet Union, although they don't really have a God in the Soviet Union except the commissars and the Jews and the rabbis. If we accept all of that, then we're just playing right into their little game and, and we only have inside-the-box solutions. So we, we can stick on this um, paradigm of capitalist versus communist because we can't pick fascism or national socialism because that's evil and the Jewish teachers and historians tell us so, so it has to be. So here we are trying to set the record straight. Exactly, and that's the whole purpose of my MindConf project, and it's the whole purpose, in, in my mind, of all the programs I've done with you on this topic. And that's what I've said on Stormfront over the years before I was banned for you know various reasons multiple times. I'm not going to get into that now, but... I've pointed out that it's it's one thing to just be a white guy who doesn't want your daughter to mix with blacks, and you don't want blacks living in your neighborhood because you understand they're dangerous. Any any idiot can come to the conclusion blacks are dangerous. That doesn't make you special. So when people are on Stormfront talking generic nationalism, oh, I don't want to live in a mixed neighborhood with blacks, and then they go on to say, but they don't see a problem with Jews because Jews are just whites who have a different religion, they're really missing the mark. And I consider the acceptance of the political, philosophical aspects of national socialism the understanding that the Holocaust didn't happen, but it should have, and we would have been fortunate if it had happened, I consider that the final step on the white nationalist journey or the white nationalist path. Well, what was the final step on the Christian identity path? Right. The, the, the step, I, I mean, we, we claim to be 
a lot of the people that scoff at us for, the, for this project claim to be um, too sea-lying even and, and denied a Jewish role in, in, in international politics in the 1930s and 40s. Well, they're either ignorant, they're naive, stupid, they're proud and haughty, and they're too proud to admit they're ignorant, or they're consciously in the employ of the enemy. There, there's some factor at work there, but as I've said, you know, we understand the Holocaust didn't happen. It should have happened. The, the Jews deserve a Holocaust. They have one coming. They're owed one. Since we've spent 80 years paying for something that didn't happen, they're entitled to a Holocaust now. Well, well the German people have been enslaved for over 100 years for a war that they didn't start. Right, well... Just to break it down in a simple example, if I get a judgment against you claiming you killed my cow and they make you pay restitution and I'm the one who killed my cow and I'm blaming it on you or there never was a cow, well, you basically owe me a dead cow now. So you're morally within your rights to kill one of my cows because they've already made you pay. So you might as well get your money's worth. If the Germans have had to pay hundreds of billions of marks and we've paid dollars and the British have paid and the Swiss have paid, if we've paid trillions of dollars over the last eight decades... Well, we're entitled to um, get what we paid for, so six million Jews right into the ovens. <laughs> now, well, 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 we know it, that's it, not going to happen in our lifetime. We're, we're probably not going to be shoving them in the ovens, but we do know they are going into the lake of fire for all eternity. It only demonstrates the truth of Scripture that Satan rules the world. If the world was a just place, then Scripture would be wrong. And And... and People with um, two seed line understanding that they're the first ones that should understand that that Satan or, or the international Jew was responsible for the destruction of Central Europe and and, and most of Eastern Europe in the aftermath and, and and Western Europe today and and this all stems from our willingness to do the work of Satan and destroy our brother. And, and that's the the, the 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 overview from a two seed line Christian identity perspective. The 1933 international boycott of Germany, the execution by Udo or Udo, I'm going to destroy his name, like by, by Udo Wallendi. Udo Wallendi is a German publisher. This this man did several years in jail in Germany for for his publications. He's a German publisher and author, best known for exposing propaganda photographs from world wars as fakes, doctored to indict Germans in Germany, especially, of course, the, the, the fake Holocaust photographs. His revisionist work includes periodic publication of the magazine Historical Facts. I think he was in prison at least twice, the, the first time for several years. On, 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 he was in prison recently also. I don't know even where he is today. He's an elderly gentleman. I don't even know if he's still alive. That's pretty sad, but I don't know. By 1933, the German people had reached their limits of tolerance under the draconian terms of the Versailles Treaty. Nationalism was on a rise. It was immediately met with an internationally coordinated effort to crush Germany's economy and keep the people in perpetual poverty and subjugation. This is what led to World War II, the rise of Adolf Hitler, and Germany's throwing off the shackles 
of, of, of enslavement in the Rothschilds and the international bankers of, of the West. That's the only thing that led to World War II. I mean, there are other factors that one can point to, but none of them are as responsible for the war as that. Previous to this article was an article entitled The Economic Boycott of Germany, The Prelude. It ran in the April 96 edition of the Barnes Review. I don't have access to that article. I've searched for it. I haven't found it. Um, the April edition is out of print. We're at the mercy of the Barnes Review to someday put it on their website in a PDF file. They promised to do, but have not done yet. The organization of an international boycott against Germany was discussed in that article. This article preserves the execution of that boycott. When Adolf Hitler was appointed chancellor in 1933, the handwriting was on the wall for the plutocratic European forces, which had kept the German nation weak and its people in near starvation conditions for 15 years from the close of the First World War. The reemergence of Germany as a viable player on the international stage, both in commerce and as a political power, could not be allowed to happen. Consequently, Jewish organizations outside of Germany set in motion an international boycott with the specific goal of bringing down the fledgling National Socialist government. Other groups, including religious and labor organizations, were recruited to help the effort. This is my point, is that if you believe contrary to this, and you claim to be a white nationalist and Christian identity, your mind is still polluted with all the garbage from the sewer pipe of the Jew. To continue with the introduction to the article... Key personalities and organizations involved included Dr. Nahum Goldman of the World Jewish Congress and the World Zionist Organization, Stephen Wise, President of the American Jewish Congress, and key player at the second preparative World Jewish Conference of September 5, 1933, in Geneva. The Jewish war veterans were key players in this. Samuel Untermeyer, one of the most powerful and influential Jewish leaders in America, who also brought us the Scofield Bible, who also helped to bring us the Federal Reserve. A successful attorney, a government advisor, and president of the non-sectarian anti-Nazi League from 1933 to 1939. W.W. Cohen, vice president of the American Jewish Congress, who organized a parade with banners proclaiming economic war on Germany. And finally, New York Catholic Bishop Francis T. McConnell. Imagine that an Irish Catholic met Jews. Why am I not surprised? Would you like to begin presenting this article, Brian? All right. Taking it from the top? Yes. All right. When Reichsbank President Halchmar Schacht arrived in the United States on a goodwill tour in early May 1933 to improve German-American relations, he found himself surrounded by an anti-Hitler tumult. On May 10, hundreds of thousands of demonstrators had assembled to condemn the Reich. Schacht then
then realized that the newspapers would continue to turn out, churn out anti-German news that would spread the boycott of German goods even further, without any possibility of diplomatic intervention on his part. The message was clear. The anti-Nazi boycott was killing Germany's economy. Schacht went home with empty hands. From January to April 1933, the Reich's exports had dropped by 10%. Edwin Black, in his book, The Transfer Agreement, the untold story of the secret pact between the Third Reich and Jewish Palestine, wrote, Meanwhile, Germany's border crisis grew hour by hour. Poland's pro-invasion military hawks found widespread support amongst a population inflamed by Jewish boycott committees. Events were culminating. The destruction of Hitler's tenuous regime from within and without loomed as the crisis of the hour in Berlin. German officials and corporate leaders had been dispatched to the cities of Europe and America to try to blunt the attack. Their efforts were unsuccessful. Government clarification, token protective decrees, and threats of unrestrained retaliation against German Jews were also unsuccessful. Stimulated by continual press reports on German atrocities in peacetime, which Schacht had emphatically denied, the boycott protests spread to the large cities of almost every country and even as far as Argentina and Australia. And I've pointed out that this would be the Jewish quarters of Argentina and Australia, because the Jews have followed us everywhere we've gone, haven't they, Bill? Well, well, absolutely. There were a large, large population of Jews in Argentina, in Brazil, and, and, and probably in every South American country, all throughout the Caribbean, early time, there were many Jews in Australia. The Australians don't want to admit it. There's probably a great number of um, what we would call crypto-Jews in Australia. Right. Just like there are a great number of crypto-Jews in the American South that people don't realize are Jews, but they are. A lot in Galveston and Savannah and Charleston. Well, well, I've seen a hell of a lot right here in Bristol, Tennessee. And they might deny being Jews, but I don't damn well they're Jews. They got noses like W.C. Fields and hair like Gene Wilder. I've also pointed out, too, the fact that they've followed us everywhere, and there's nowhere we can go to be away from them. They say that racists have no place in, their, in you know, Western modern civilization and organized society, but they don't well, do anything about it. You know? and, and I should have said a nose is like Jimmy Durante. That, that would have been a better choice. Well, it's, 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 we live in a Jewish culture. Right, well, Jewish culture, so of course race has no place in a Jewish culture. Well, there's nowhere that we can go, and there's nowhere they want us to go. They want us to die. It's not a simple matter where they can take the Falkland Islands, declare it a, a right-wing, white, fascist homeland, and anybody who doesn't want to get along in the U.K., France, Germany, America, or Canada, just move there and live your life in peace. If they did that, they would lose when we set up a thriving, prosperous, safe, healthy community and served as an, a living, shining beacon on the hill. The whole world would want to emulate that to attain that prosperity. Basically, if one white man and one white woman can leave the control, the New World Order Jewish regime that they've established and live in peace, then they lose. They can't allow one single white family to live outside of their reign. It can't well, be well, done. You know that. Their survival is dependent on it. That they, they, that's the failure of movements like the Northwest Movement and, and, and that Harold, whatever the hell his name is, I can't even remember. That they, um, you know, if, the, if all the white people that were racially conscious moved to Washington and Oregon, 
the Jews would let them succeed, and then they declare war. It, it's real simple. You're not going to get out of this without without a fight. Right. So we are in a death struggle. Only one race can emerge. Well, well, only one race can emerge, and and whites had better wake up and understand that only God can save us, because we're sure as hell in no shape to save ourselves. Are you going to proceed? All right. Even as far as Argentina and Australia, while predominantly in Britain and the Netherlands, labor unionists, and Labor Party leaders supported the boycott movement. The German fur, textile, and diamond trades were hit particularly hard. In other words, Jews in Germany were hit particularly hard. I, I can't imagine many genuine Germans being involved as diamond merchants. Well, well, right, and we'll see later in this article that the Jews in Germany did not want this interference from Jewry out, out, outside in from international Jewry and uh, the American Jews that that really beat the war drums and 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 it began in March of 1933. Right, but Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, and Jews in country A will treacherously betray Jews in country B or C if it serves their long-term interests. Well, well, we will see later in this article that there were even di- a divergence of interests between Zionist Jews and international capitalist Jews. In the first quarter of 1933, Germany's vital surplus of export was less than half the 1932 figure. Demands were already being made in the United States by John Foster Dulles to have German private and public assets seized in compensation for her debts, thus dissolving German international trade assets. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that's an act of war. Well, well yes, it is an act of war. But... but, but. Dulles was, you know, it was a calculation because Germany was in no position to launch a war at that time. Right, but America was certainly in no position to be in any sort of war. And America has gone to war for less. If I'm not mistaken, we've tried to undermine regimes. We've sponsored assassinations and coups when some populist, usually left-leaning leader comes to power in some country, nationalizes capitalist, you know, companies' assets that they built over the last several decades, then we try and assassinate said leader. We do assassinate said leader, or we try a coup, or we pull off a coup, or we send the troops in. Well, well right. I mean, we've been doing that for, for the last hundred years, ever since imperialist America began. Right. I mean, that seems to be the order of the day. Some, you know, populist-type leader, maybe not exactly popular with everybody, but he comes to power, nationalizes an oil refinery, and the next thing you know, it's time to send in the Marines. Well, when you see us go to war, every time you see us go to war, you know we're going to war against a, a, a country or, or a, a, a tribe that's not playing ball with the Jewish bankers. That's the war is solely for material reasons. We haven't had a war in the last, I think since the war with Mexico, I'll say. You know, a lot of Americans think, oh, World War II, that was the good war. Oh, the Civil War. Oh, free the slaves. Long live Lincoln. I'm not, I'm not going to get on board with any of that garbage. I think the the last constitutional, decent, morally justifiable, and in fact necessary conflict was the war with Mexico. They started it, and we finished it, and they wanted to conquer all the way to the Mississippi River, take New Orleans, and shut down our access to the Gulf of Mexico. 
So it wasn't some imperialist adventure that we provoked them to attack us. They had their own expansionist ambitions. But other than that, every war since then has been a war for imperialism, materialism, money, or it's just been a war, you know, the great war to kill white people. Well, well and every war was, well, well, the Civil War, I actually believe that it was a struggle between the, the, the Yankee bankers and, and the British bankers over who was going to control the South, and, and that the South was not going to have its own economic independence. So, so that, that's my theory anyway. Right, and I don't like that there was a war, but I'm, I'm split on the potential outcomes of the war. If it had ended with the South seceding, I think soon thereafter – North America would have probably been broken up into various spheres of influence by the European powers. And by European powers, I mean the Jewish-controlled European powers. Well, that's what the Rothschilds wanted. They wanted to control the South, and they wanted the raw materials, and, and they wanted to change Negro labor at their, at their disposal. And, and they wanted to tyrannize the, the, the Southern man. So, so the Yankee bankers basically won. Uh, I mean, I'm torn myself on, on the issue of the Civil War because... On one hand, I, I sympathize with the southern states and their, their right to independence and self-determination. But then on the other hand, I know that the Rothschilds were kind of and that they really wanted to separate the South for their own purposes and, and also to break North America up into divergent interests. Now, the Rothschilds failed. That set back their, their plan for, for quite some time. By 1913, they came to control the company, the country anyway, so it really didn't matter in one run. Well, we caved into them anyway. It didn't matter. All right, this is too much of a digression from our right, top. Okay, right. Black comments. When the Reich could no longer pay its obligations, Germany would be bankrupt. That moment had been technically postponed for years by rationing foreign exchange to only the most important transactions. But when the Reichsbank... Reichsbank reserves hit so hard by both the boycott and the depression, there would soon be nothing left to ration. If exports fell too low, Germany as a nation would again be faced with starvation. It had happened just 14 years earlier. It was still fresh in the mind, still fresh in many minds. In the winter of 1919, a besieged Germany had been blockaded in the submission, starved into defeat. And I would like to point out that an armistice was agreed upon in November 1918. The British maintained their boycott for about a year to force the Germans to accept the Versailles Treaty and to force them to surrender their navy, surrender their industry, and surrender everything. That's an ongoing act of war, isn't it, to boycott a country that you've um, agreed to a ceasefire and an armistice with to continue boycotting food and medicine? Well, well, absolutely. I mean, we we well, we never stopped fighting World War One, and we'll see that vociferated later on in this article. Well, I think someday the the British are going to know what it's like to be boycotted and embargoed and blockaded. What I, I think it's at some point when you know there's a resurgent Germany. What British? They're all Muslims. <laughs> that might be an overstatement, but it's on its way. Well, the British seem to always march in lockstep with the Rothschilds. It seems that the British are always eager to kill people, whether they're Serbs, Germans, you know, halt the Hun, whether they're killing Boers or forcing the Chinese to smoke opium. It's the, the propaganda. It's the power of the media. The, Brit, the, the Brits were the first Europeans to, to fall for it, flying and sinking. 
and now America's taking on that role. Well, well, America's had that role since since 1913 when the Jews controlled our economy. To the Nazis, the anti-German boycott of 1933 was in many ways a reminiscent tactic. There were no enemy ships in the seaways, no hostile divisions at the bridgeheads, but as effective as any blockading frigate or infantryman was this boycott that blocked German goods from being sold, blocked foreign exchange from being earned, and blocked the means of survival from entering Germany. How many months could Germany survive once the boycott became global, once commerce was rerouted around Germany? The boycotters adopted a slogan, Germany will crack this winter. Don't they always have stupid slogans, home before Christmas, home by Christmas, over by winter? They're always so sure of themselves. And I'm sure old Germany, Weimar Germany, would have cracked in a month or two, but they dangerously underestimated the new National Socialist Germany. Well, well, absolutely. They, they were shocked when Hitler moved against France and, and, and Poland and, and took those countries and, and the low countries of Northern Europe so quickly. They were shocked at that. The, the French had an army of 6 million men. The Vermont had 100,000. Well, not, no. when the war, well, not when the war broke out. When the war broke out, it was about even, and the Germans had better equipment. Uh, I, think the, I think the French were, were, had, had a great um, forces superiority. I could be wrong, but I, I've heard it was, I, I've read that it was much higher. The Germans had 141 divisions. The French and British Expeditionary Force had 144 divisions. Well, well no, I mean France as a whole. France as a whole had a much larger armed forces than Germany. But they also had to be deployed on the border with Spain and the border with Italy. Because the Italians attacked France, too. Right. But they didn't accomplish much. I'm not talking only about the soldiers that were engaged. Oh, you mean like all throughout their empire? Right. Well, the French were also relying heavily on a lot of non-whites, and, you know, the Germans had a better army. It was a German army. Well, well, Adolf Hitler was complaining about the French putting niggers on the Rhine in the first war. Wasn't an accident, wasn't a coincidence. Well, of course not. Since the spring, the Jewish war veterans in New York, Jewish war veterans, what does that mean, commissars from the Soviet Union? They won the battle against women and children in the Ukraine. Jewish war veterans, what a joke. Since the spring, the Jewish war veterans in New York and the Polish boycott committees in Warsaw had talked of joining forces. On June 3rd, Lord Melchut, Melchut and the British Trade Unions Congress took the initiatives and issued formal invitations to the independent boycott committees of the world to assemble in London on June 25 to establish an international boycott council. I wonder how independent these organizations are. They're taking their marching orders from Moscow, London, and New York. Melshit, titled the Boycott Convention, the World Jewish Economic Conference. At about the same time, the World Economic Conference, convened by FDR, was underway in London but it achieved just the opposite of what it set out to achieve, an economic collaboration of the parties of world trade to remedy the economic crisis. A right cabinet meeting on June 23, 1933, reported, Pessimists, pessimistic as were the expectations with which the German delegation went to London, 
They were outdistanced by far. Germany found among all states an attitude that hardly could be worse. I wonder, FDR has been president about a year at this point in time, and the Depression's in full swing. Instead of trying to help the country, he thinks the best thing to do is go to London and handle a conference to boycott Germany, because that's what we want to do. We want to boycott German goods and curtail trade. We don't want Germans buying American cars. That might help Ford and GM get out of the Depression. Well, well, Caesar was actually, uh, I'm sorry, Hitler was actually looking forward to that economic conference. In in that other speech that we were thinking about um, presenting here shortly, the speech from March 25th, 1933, Hitler's speech to the Reichstag, he said that we welcome the plan for a world economic conference and approve of its meeting at an early date. The government of the Reich is to, ready to take part in this conference in order to arrive at positive results at last. Adolf Hitler was, um, I don't want to say naive. I, I, he, he was zealous enough in, in, in his belief that he could win reasonable men over to his side. Right. He may have been naive in, in thinking that, right? The the, um, the well, national socialists were actually pretty disappointed, of course, at the outcome of the economic conference. But he was looking forward to it, and and he was looking forward to um, using that conference as a means to pull Germany out of to help pull Germany out of the problems that it was having. He was positive about this conference, and it shows that his real intentions were not to take over the world militarily, right? A man who has who has plans to take the world over militarily isn't going to give a a, a wit about an economic conference. Not only well, as I was going to say, he may have been naive in thinking that these were reasonable, honorable, just men who wanted the same things he wanted. But I don't uh, think he, he he wasn't naive in wanting those things. No, 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 absolutely not. But I, I, he was naive in thinking that these men were going to be fair. Right, and maybe he just didn't know their ancestry. Since by well, this point in time, a, a lot of these British lords weren't really British. He understood the power of the international Jew, and, and that's very clear in my top. And, and he understood the Jewish capitalism and, and communism. He understood that they were both two arms of the same beast. But I don't think that he understood the extent to which the capitalist Jews had sway over the hearts and minds of the other white leaders of the Western world. That's my assessment. All right, and I also believe he he failed to recognize that a lot of these Western leaders were an eighth Jewish, half Jewish, a quarter Jewish. I mean, he, he knew it about France, you know, with Leon Blum. That's a dead giveaway. But I don't think he realized that, you know, Churchill and possibly Lord Halifax and Roosevelt, I don't think he realized these people were either probably Jewish or at least part Jewish. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure about that. I can't comment on that. He did talk at my top about how... Well, well, to the to, to the extent that the Prussian nobility had already intermingled with Jews, but I don't recall his words in, in that aspect with the British nobility. I could be wrong. 
On Samuel Untermeyer's recommendation, the World Jewish Economic Conference was postponed to July 20 and relocated to Amsterdam. About 35 countries were to participate. For weeks, they had exchanged experiences, discussed successful boycott ideas, compiled long lists of manufacturers and sellers seeking alternatives for German goods, discussed countermeasures against boycott breakers, and even founded the special boycott publication, the Jewish Economic Forum. Untermeyer's assessment of the situation, according to Black. He had taken pains to explain to conservative Anglo-Jewish leaders that a de facto popular international boycott already existed. In Poland, it is incredibly good. In Czechoslovakia, fantastically good. In France and England, fair. In America, very good. Fiery speeches and a feisty determination to crack German economic staying power created an impressive spectacle that finally put the world on notice that some element of the Jews was united in the war against the Third Reich. Now, now this is, an, an, an basically, that they're admitting that it's a war against the Third Reich, and Adolf Hitler's only in power for a few weeks at this time. Right, well, they try and say, oh, his views and attitudes toward the Jews were long since established and were well-known at this point in time. Well, well, they were known from Mein Kampf, but he, he hadn't um, ever he had taken, up to, up to this point, he had taken no property from any Jew. He, he had legislated nothing concerning the Jews. There's no legislation up to this point at all in, in the Reichstag concerning Jews. None. So, so they're basically warring against the German people's right to self-determination is what they're warring against. Right. Well, as I've said before, when you tell Al Capone you're not paying protection money anymore, you better be ready for a fight. Absolutely. In Amsterdam, the following resolution was adopted. Whereas, unanimous outcry, protests, and demonstrations of Jews and non-Jews throughout the civilized world against the incredibly inhuman policy towards the Jews of Germany have been unavailing, whereas the Hitler government has repeatedly expressed its determination to annihilate them economically, to deprive them of their citizenship, and eventually exterminate them. Now, therefore, be it resolved that boycotting of German goods, products, and shipping is the only effective weapon for world Jewry and humanity by way of defense and protection of Jewish rights, property, and dignity in Germany. We earnestly urge all the men and women of the civilized world, irrespective of race or creed, to support and join in this movement against brutal fanaticism and bigotry, and to help lead it to a victorious conclusion, and until the last traces of barbarous persecutions have been eliminated. So if we're supposed to take an economic stand against fanaticism and bigotry, shouldn't the world be united in a total boycott of Israel? Well, well right. And, and Adolf Hitler understood the manner in which the Jews had gained such influence in Germany. And, and they were basically criminals. And he understood that. It's expressed in my comp. But, but the, um, the propaganda here that he would exterminate them, that doesn't appear anywhere in Mein Kampf. That doesn't appear anywhere in Adolf Hitler's writings. If it appeared in Adolf Hitler's writings, they would be trumpeting it. But it doesn't. But it doesn't. It only appears in their minds. It's Jewish propaganda. 
to to and and here we see how early it is that this is still the early months of 1933. And, and here we see the Holocaust unfolding. Uh, of course, not the Holocaust ever happened, but here we see the Holocaust tales and the atrocity tales unfolding right from the beginning. Well, how many um, Jews again did the German army murder when they marched through Belgium? Didn't they? Um, they bayoneted half a million and threw them in the river? Yeah, like there were half a million Jews in Belgium. They were scoring babies on bayonets. There's no story too fantastic for Jew when he, the crocodile tears are boring. Well, you know, the Jews often attribute their own atrocities to other people. The Hitler Channel, I mean the History Channel, had a documentary on several years ago, and it said that as the Germans were marching through one town in Belgium, they killed 600 men, raped about 100 women, then bayoneted the women, and then they threw all the bodies in a river. They burned the church down. They raped the nuns, bayoneted the nuns, and then they bayoneted the priests, and they threw them in a river too. And then they burned the whole town down and finished marching along. And that, to me, just sounds like something that the Jews probably did in some nameless town in the Ukraine. They did it all over Spain. <laughs> they did it all over Spain in, in, in the um, Civil War there in the 1930s. Right, so it's what a, a Jewish shrink would call projection. They're projecting their atrocities onto people who have never done anything approaching such a level. Well, well they've done it over and over again. We saw that with Russia number one, and, and com- compared with, with World War II, we saw the atrocities in the Ukraine compared with the, their accusations against the, the, the National Socialists. It, it happens over and over again. That, that's the Jews are masters at projection. They're masters at... at um, committing atrocious deeds and then crying that their enemies have done such things to them. They've been doing that for a long time. If their enemies had done such things to them, they wouldn't be here today. Well, absolutely. Yeah, You know, back when um, when the Romans leveled Jerusalem, the, the Jews had actually written in the Talmud that rivers of blood carried boulders down to the sea. That, that 100,000 Jewish school children were, were destroyed in one village. It, 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 the, the atrocity tells from that time. Well, there was, there was one that I think said that the Romans killed six billion Jews. Yeah, yeah. well, I don't know how the Jews aren't suing Rome for Holocaust reparations from the first century. I, I don't know how they're not doing it. Right. Black continues, the declaration of war officially proclaimed the soldiers of Israel broke up into three business-like commissions. Working with great speed, the conferees unanimously established the new world organization they had promised, named the World Jewish Economic Federation. It would be headquartered in London with Lord Melshit as its honorary chairman and Untermeyer as its president. Am I butchering that British Jew lord's name? Is it Melchit? Melshit? I don't want people to think I'm, you know, putting a slur in there as his name. Yeah, well, Melchit sounded worse for me. Uh, I wouldn't know how to pronounce it. C-H-E-T-T, I guess Melchit. I just don't want people to think I'm swearing in place of his name. The, the Jews, they're, they always get away with setting up these supranational governments and, and in, in the name of religion. And, and it's amazing that, that, that the cattle, the Goyim nations, allow them to do that time and again. It, it's two years ago, I did an editorial in the Saxon Messenger 
Well, when the Jews were brazen enough to be to, to found their own European Jewish Union, which actually met in the, the, the European Union building. Oh, and I've, I've just confirmed it. Melshit was an English Jew. I'm on Wiki, and he's listed under British Jews, English Jews. Julian Moaned, third baron, Melshit was an English industrialist who became the third Baron Melchett on the death of his father in 1949. He's listed under English Jews, British Jews. So there we have it. Not, not really care if I'm butchering his name. It's okay. <laughs> you probably, I would say Melchett, but, but it doesn't. Okay. But this personal, personal initiative on the part of Melshit and Untermeyer was thought of as a place, a palace revolution by the traditional Jewish organizations, such as the Anglo-Jewish Association and the Dutch Jewish Committee, and considered non-representative. Wise, as well as Goldman, both of them being concerned with the organization of the World Jewish Congress, also had obviously personal reasons for taking the coordinated boycott into their own hands, thus discrediting Untermeyer. So again, Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. Their demands were identical in principle, as can be seen from the language adopted at the later World Jewish Congress. There, it would be reported in 1936. The boycott organizations were the first in every country to call attention to Germany's plans for economic conquest and military aggression. So essentially what they're doing is they're surrounding Germany they're pointing a gun at Germany, and they're predicting, oh, Germany's going to shoot us. Well, if you surround somebody and point a gun at them, they're going to defend themselves. So they, they thought that they could encircle Germany and predict German aggression when really all they're predicting is German self-defense. No, no doubt. It, it's expressed here, and, and I really thought they believed that they could bring down the, the, the um, National Socialist government, that the people would revolt against it, and it didn't happen. They warned public opinion against Germany's huge rearmament policy. They alerted it to Germany's economic domination of the weak southeastern European regions and of certain Latin American countries, which might lead to their political domination by the Third Reich. In other words, they don't want competition. They pointed out the dishonest trade methods employed by Germany. That's a laugh. At the same time, they carried out an unremitting campaign to enlighten the public through all kinds of mediums about the German atrocities, the persecution of the church, the destruction of labor organizations, the degradation of women, and the regimentation of education. So it's not degrading in Weimar when the Jews have 100,000 females working as prostitutes in Berlin, and they have mother-daughter prostitute teams, pregnant women prostitutes. They had hunchback women prostitutes. They said that any sick perversion someone wanted any um, itch they wanted scratched, they could get it in Weimar, Germany. The first sex change operations were done in Weimar, Germany, in Berlin, and I think in Munich in the 1920s. So that's not degrading, but the, the Germans are degrading. And they talk about the persecution of the church. If I'm not mistaken, basically every single church and cathedral was destroyed. The wonderful cathedral of Christ the Savior was dynamited. I think personally, Lazar Kaganovich was on the scene and struck the demolition charge. He activated the blasting caps. So this there's an article I wrote a few years ago on Christogeny called the Weimar Republic, and I was able to collect some art, some original art from Weimar Germany, and and the art is advertising, and it promotes race fixing and it promotes lesbianism. 
lesbianism is very heavily promoted in Weimar Germany. Weimar Germany. All kinds of sexual immorality. It, it was it was a cesspool. It was Sodom and Gomorrah. It's it was New York, right? I mean, today now now we are Weimar Germany without a doubt. Right, and we just roll over and let it happen. Well, well, right. But wherever the Jews go, you're going to find Sodom and Gomorrah. What wherever the Jew is allowed to have the upper hand in a nation's politics and, and legislation, you're go, going to have Sodom and Gomorrah, there's no doubt. Well, where the Jews go, hell follows with them. Well, well, just like where the Africans go, they bring Africa. Where the Jews go, they bring Sodom and Gomorrah. It, it's in their genes. If one reads elsewhere in Black's book that the leading personalities of the World Jewish Congress understood the political situation from 1919 to 1939 not as peace but as an armistice, then the verbiage created in this fighting atmosphere interspersed with so many untrue allegations becomes understandable. It may, not be, it may be noted that the period of the Weimar Republic is likewise included in this armistice terminology with no difference made from the years 1933 to 1939. This terminology would find its more precise expression later on in a letter written by Winston Churchill to Joseph Stalin Jugashvili on February 22, 1944, in which he called World War II a 30-year war against German aggression beginning in 1914. In spite of the long-lasting personal quarrels among Weiss, Goldman, and Chaim Wiseman as top representatives of their organizations on one hand, and Untermeyer as ad hoc boycott organizer on the other hand, the boycott became a fact. It had brought about a considerable isolation of Germany and extraordinary losses for the German export trade at a time when the world economic crisis caused more than six million jobless in Germany and when Germany could not even begin to keep peace, keep pace with the additional reparations payments. Without mentioning any figures in this connection, an exchange of letters between Dresdener Bank and the French Bank Societe Generale, dated July 1933, characterizes the general situation. It is prefaced by Black as follows. Desperate directors of Germany's prestigious Dresdener Bank hope to call upon the international banking fraternity for help in a dramatic written appeal sent in mid-July to a major French bank, the Societe Generale. Dresden Bank frantically declared, quote, the atrocity propaganda harmful to German trade is based on lies and distortions of facts. Complete tranquility reigns in Germany, and any non-party person on the spot can convince himself that no one is hindered in the lawful pursuit of his private and professional affairs. We would be glad if in the interests of international trade relations, you would spread the truth and do your utmost to bring about a speedy end of the boycott of German goods, end quote. This highly unusual plea provoked an equally unusual response from Societe Generale, which had for decades enjoyed cordial professional relations with Dresden Bank. Societe Generale's response, which ultimately reached the world's newspaper, was that, quote, on opening our mail, we find an amazing circular from your esteemed bank. We beg to draw your attention to the fact that a French business would never presume to send propaganda material in business correspondence. We are thus compelled to assume that the tactlessness of your letter arises from an inborn lack of taste. As for the systematic persecution of Jews by your government, we know what to believe. 
We know doctors have been driven from hospitals, lawyers struck off, and shops closed down. Every nation is a master in its own house. Nevertheless, we are free to turn our business sympathies to our friends and not to a nation which aims to destroy, aims at destroying individual liberty. We assure you, gentlemen, that we will continue to esteem your bank, but we cannot extend our sympathy to Germany in general, for we cannot hide our belief that the National Socialist Party will extend its lust for power to other countries at the first opportunity. You ask us to pass on this circular. Rest assured, we will do so, and our answer with it. End quote. Well, well, it was the Jewish propaganda, but it was also something that the Jewish hand, which moved against Germany first, had forced Adolf Hitler to do. I wonder if they extended these same harsh words to any bankers in the Soviet Union talking about destroying individual liberty, or, or were they all too content to do business with the Soviets? Well, well the first thing the Soviets did was, the first thing that the Bolsheviks did was institute a central bank. That it, was, it was like Libya. Yeah, you, know, you, know, you know, the, um, the, the American finance CIA Mossad rebels that, that, um, that toppled Libya, what did they do? One of the first things they did was start a central bank. And if I'm not mistaken, it was on... May 2nd, May 2nd, 1935, the French concluded the Franco-Soviet Treaty of Mutual Assistance. Well, well right. The French were, were um, basically in bed with the Soviets all along. And, and here we see, in, in, in the words of Winston Churchill, that, that the war with Germany never ended. Right, and former British Prime Minister David Lloyd George stated that Hitler would have been a traitor to his own country, Germany, if he had not acted to enhance rearmament and if he had not remilitarized the Rhineland. Since as, as soon as the French concluded this pact with the Soviets, Hitler remilitarized the Rhineland. Well, if you have a nation on your western frontier and a nation on your eastern frontier, and they've concluded a pact, the true nature of the pact, aside from what's stated, it's stated as a defensive alliance to deter aggression in Europe, you can infer the true meaning, the true purpose of the pact is to attack and divide your nation, split it down the middle. One side attacks from the east, the other from the west. Wouldn't you agree Hitler would have been foolish if he hadn't seen the Franco-Soviet mutual assistance pact as a direct threat on Germany? Well, well, of course it was a direct threat on Germany. There's no doubt. Would you like to um, take over? <laughs> right. I just hope the echo isn't, isn't too bad. In late July 1933, Reichstag representatives approached London brokers for an embarrassingly small loan of 40 million marks, slightly more than 3 million pounds sterling. This case caused a round of derisive laughter in the London financial community. Investors Review reported it, reported in its August 5, 1933 issue, we have seen a letter written by a financial broker in Berlin that throws a lurid light on the dreadful condition to which Hitlerism has reduced Germany. The writer states that he has been asked by the Reichsbank itself to negotiate for it alone of 40 to 50 million marks. That the Reichsbank, formerly perhaps the greatest financial institution on the continent, should have come begging to London for a paltry sum is alarming. 
So it is not surprising to hear that authoritative opinion is that Hitlerism will come to a sanguinary end before the end of the year. A sanguinary end means an end where blood is shed. London refused, as did the U.S. Germany could not count on any financial aid from abroad. On August 6th, Untermeyer returned to New York from Amsterdam and greeted his compatriots in a continent-wide radio broadcast, which was immediately arranged for him. He said in part, and it's sad that somebody like Samuel Untermeyer can, can um, get a continent-wide radio broadcast, what, where most of the American people are going to hear it, and he's an alien, and he's a Jew, right? And, and that's the extent that, that the Jews control the media in this country right from the beginning, the electronic media. Untermeyer said in part, I deeply appreciate your enthusiastic greeting on my arrival today, which I quite understand is addressed not to me personally, but to the holy war in the cause of humanity in which we are embarked. So, so it, it, it's, it's a war. It's world Jewry declaring war on Germany as soon as Adolf Hitler took office. And he had no choice. The, the, the stage was set. He had no, no choice but to arm Germany and to fight that war. With the nation listening, Untermeyer explained how the whole world had already made surprising and gratifying progress in the economic war against Nazism. Each of you, Jew and Gentile alike, who is not already enlisted in the sacred war, should do so now. It is not sufficient that you buy no goods made in Germany. You must refuse to deal with any merchant or shopkeeper who sells any German-made goods or who patronizes German ships. To our chain, there are a few Jews among us, but fortunately only a few, so wanting in dignity and self-respect that they travel on German ships where they are despised. Their names should be heralded far and wide. They are traitors to their race. Jews see themselves as a race. And, and then they deny that to unwitting American evangelicals by saying that they're only a religion. That the, um, the panache of, of the Jew is incredible, that he, he would just lie to a national audience in, in order to sway that audience into in supporting him as if that's the right thing to do because the rest of the world already knows this. And, and of course, you should take it for granted that my words are true. And, and, and that's the power of the electronic media. It's held total sway over the Aryan mind for 100 years. Well, the Jews are the greatest liars in the world, aren't they, Bill? Absolutely, and, and, and they've used that electronic media right from the beginning in a very effective manner. So most people think, they, they just take it for granted. They take the Jews at face value when they claim to be God's chosen people. Well, if they're God's chosen people, then God has to be a pedophilic, pornographic, pawn shop, dope peddling, slave trafficking pervert. Well, well, right. If the Jews are in the image of God, then God is is a is a perverted, corrupt, dope-smoking, beatnik hippie, right? And I think Wesley Swift said that if um, 
if God is a Jew, the only thing left for us to do is commit suicide. Right, absolutely. The, the, um, the average American gets just about everything that he thinks he knows comes from the electronic media. And, and the Jew is controlled. Or for that matter, private school is not much better. To, to advance his own interests ever since it was developed in the 1920s and 30s. There's no doubt. At about the same time, the 18th Zionist Congress convened in Prague, August 21st to September 4th, 1933. Over 10,000 delegates and visitors attended. The Zionist organization constituted a government without country, subdivided into territorial federations from each country, while the Jews controlled every Western country at this time and half the countries of the East, maybe more than that. It was subdivided into territorial federations from each country, into religious and other associations, political parties, and fractional groups. The League of Nations had granted it a quasi-governmental status. Every Jew who paid an amount of money equal to a token biblical shekel, about 25 cents, could vote. The Mapai, or Labor Party, headed by David Ben-Gurion, which represented roughly 44% of the delegates and was considered a moderate branch of Jewry, turned out to be the strongest faction. It nevertheless had to stand hot disputes with the irreconcilable radical, irreconcilably radical revisionists headed by Vladimir Jabotinsky of Poland, who did not shrink away from the political murder of their own people, while the Jews have never shrunk away from that. The assassination of Chaim Arlosarov, a member of the Jewish Executive Jewish Agency Executive Committee, and one of the most respected Zionists by members of the said radical revisionists, which occurred north of Haifa, shortly before the conference on June 16, 1933, particularly accentuated conflicts at the conference. Arlosarov had pleaded for negotiations with Germany to enable the emigration of German Jews and the transfer of Jewish assets to Palestine. So the revisionists killed him because they saw him as a moderate. Black says, in a moving speech, Jabotinsky insisted that all energies be expended to force the Congress to join the boycott movement Nothing less than a merciless fight would be acceptable, cried Jabotinsky. The present Congress is duty-bound to put the Jewish problem in Germany before the entire world. We are conducting a war with murderers. We must destroy, destroy, destroy them, not only with the boycott, but politically, supporting all existing forces against them to isolate Germany from the civilized world. This is 1933 still, right? While Jabotinsky urged his followers to postpone their personal differences in favor of war against Nazism, Ben-Gurion demanded that his supporters do the opposite. He proposed giving the revisionists 
the choice of pledging allegiance to the high-controlled organizations with their moderate aims or leaving the Congress. A Mopai-controlled presidium finally did prevail. Their spokesman, Nayim Sokolow, had visibly great problems finding the correct words to describe the sentiments of the delegates. He said, It is not our task. This is a very moderate position, but I believe it's because the Zionists wanted to keep relations in Germany with Germany in order to facilitate the transfer agreement, right? Sokolow said, it is not our task to influence or criticize the internal developments of the German people, which have gravely suffered through the war and its consequences. We are not gathered here to criticize any one nation or any one state. It is not part of the program of the Zionist organization to break its shepherd's back over this or that state organization, this or that economic system. Our duty is to speak the truth. And I believe they were only trying to um, to cultivate a, 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 an, a, a cooperation with Germany to facilitate the transfer agreement. That's why they had such a moderate stance. The moderate stance did not prevail, of course. Speaking of Sokolow, but he did not forget to focus on the words of the Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, in that he repeated, also without concrete details, what really happened in Germany. And the article quotes, The Jews will never forget and never forgive Germany's insult. And of course, the detailed exactly what the insult is. I tried to research the program and I couldn't find a reference to it. That there was a authoritative. What Jabotinsky was not allowed to say in the conference, he postulated during a press conference outside and he said, 100,000 members of the, of the revisionist movement will exploit all possibilities around the world to carry out the boycott of Germany. We sympathize with our German brethren, and that means the Jews in Germany, right? But Hitlerism is a danger to the 16 million Jews all over the world. And the German Jews, and this is an important quote, because he says, the German Jews cannot influence us not to fight our enemy. Our enemy must be destroyed. Well, what is he doing here? They're saying the Germans are planning to annihilate us economically and then exterminate us, but he said our enemy must be destroyed. Well, well, how, well, how, how do you destroy a nation without killing everyone in it? Right, and, and on top of that, you, you know, this, that this contradicts the, um, the claims of his compatriots that the German Jews are being severely persecuted, where the German Jews are actually campaigning in an effort to prevent world Jewry from boycotting Germany. So, so the Jews are at odds against themselves, but the position, and, and here we see it admitted by Jabotinsky, the, the position 
of, of the German Jews is to be left alone, and their position proves that they were not being persecuted. They were not being persecuted by the National Socialists at this point. Yes, um, certain Jews in certain positions were removed from those positions, but most Jews were safe in their businesses. No Jews lost property or, or, or life or land at this point. None whatsoever. And, and there were, there's no legislation against any Jew up to this point. Right. Well, they're no longer allowed to be communist agitators. They're not allowed to rise up with a Spartacist uprising. They're not allowed to take hostages in Munich, and they're not allowed to set off bombs. So, in other words, Jews who are able to conform to the norms, standards, and laws of German society and the German state are allowed to remain within the Reich. Well, well, right, but all of these, all of these statements from various Jews in, in, involved in this, in this war against Germany, as they declared it, all, all of these statements prove beyond doubt that the Jews were the aggressors in the Second World War. They were the instigators. They were the aggressors. They wanted Germany destroyed even before Germany actually lifted a finger against the Jew. And you can't say, oh, oh I killed him in self-defense because I thought he was going to kill me. If you don't have means to, to kill me, I mean, or any um, definite action to, to display, your, to prove your intent. I, 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 I killed him in self-defense because I stuck a knife in his back. He turned around wounded and tried to draw a gun and shoot me, so I had no choice but to shoot him first. Yeah, but it's even worse than that. Germany didn't even have a gun at this time. I mean... It's the Jews are the aggressors in World War Two. The documents prove it. Right. Well, the Jews have always been aggressors and backstabbers and agitators. No matter what Germany did, Germany couldn't do anything to gain their approval. Hitler said that the only thing he could do to gain the approval of the um, the Western powers, the decadent Jewish powers, he said, I would have to ask and. Ask them, men of Geneva, men of the League of Nations, how many billions of Reichsmarks shall I deliver this year? How many for next year? And how, how much gold shall I extract from our children and grandchildren? You know, how many of my people shall I sell into um, perpetual servitude to your whims? And he said, if I had made those promises and said those things to them, they would clap their hands together and say, aha, at last, a reasonable German leader. Well, one thing I wanted to mention earlier, and, and I think it was four or five paragraphs ago, right? What was that? This, um, I, I think it was Wise that said it. It, it may have been. Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Untermeyer that talked about how Germany was persecuting the church in Germany. And, and that was the, the exact opposite was true, right? The problem was that um, no, nobody gets any news in the United States or Europe at this time unless it goes through the Jewish news agencies. That There are no non-Jewish news agencies from which to get news from Europe. The Jews could say anything they want about Europe at this time. And as long as Reuters would cooperate with them, they'll get away with it. The, um, Theodore Kaufman wrote a book, Germany must be destroyed. I think it was published in 1940. And in that book, it actually said that um, every German should be castrated or neutered. And, and, 
Jewish obsession with genitals and sex and reproduction. Right. He, he said he said something very much to that effect. And, and Time Magazine and the New York Times that they lauded that book. And, and I think that was 1940. It may have been earlier. I should have looked it up for this program. Back words of it was called Germany must be destroyed. Yeah, something along those lines. I just Google Germany. Germany must be destroyed, and the, the first thing that came up with was a Yahoo question by Andy the Nazi hunter. Normally he's against intervention, but Germany is becoming more and more right-wing. We need to act now before fascism comes back in France, Italy, Hungary, and Germany, and it's time to destroy Germany. So maybe he's the grandson or the great-grandson of the kike that wrote that book. Probably. Okay, back to Vladimir Jabotinsky. Although he had been excluded from the Zionist Congress, his words were nevertheless propagated by the world's press. The, the statement that um, the German Jews couldn't stop the other Jews of the world from making war against Germany, and that Germany must be destroyed, right? Oh, Phil, um, Mark Downey has just posted... Germany Must Perish. It is a 104-page book written by Theodore Newman Kaufman in the summer of 1941. He's advocating the genocide through sterilization of all Germans, their territorial dismemberment of Germany, and that France, Netherlands, Poland, and Czech Republic, or, um, Czechoslovakia should annex. All of what is well, they, the Germans are sterilized anyway with homosexuality and other vile practices, uh, along with the rest of Europe. And, and right, but if you're going to sterilize everybody in the country, why not just come right out and kill them? Right. Why Back to Jabotinsky. Uh, although he had been excluded from the Zionist Congress, his words were nevertheless propagated by the world press, a factor which certainly did not contribute to a peaceful solution to the problems on hand. Notwithstanding the fact that during the 18th Venus Congress, the word boycott was avoided, even forbidden, while well, they were the moderates. The columns of the world press were filled with a new subject, the Second World Jewish Conference in Geneva, which commenced on September 5, 1933, immediately following the 18th Venus Congress, here, the exact opposite was true. According to Black, anyone who dared rationalize trading with the enemy was a traitor, and all boycott traders were to be exposed. 100 delegates in Geneva from 24 countries, led by wives, president of the American Jewish Congress, were determined to create a worldwide boycott organization, but this resolution was on a collision course with the Zenist movement. The new callousness generated the belligerent atmosphere of the Second World Jewish Congress can be described by the words of two of the two leading personalities as recorded by Black. Therefore, the first task of the conference, urged Goldman, was to create the organization needed to conduct a bitter, well-planned war against Nazi Germany. And wise, it's attributed as having said, 
When the Jewish boycott of German goods and wares is to be ended depends not upon the Jewish people, but upon the Nazi government. This instrumentality of moral and economic pressure, Jews have been compelled reluctantly to adopt and utilize. But they will not lay this down until such time as the great wrong inflicted upon the German Jews is undone, and the German Jews once again be placed in the status and position which were rightly their own before the ascension of the Hitler government. Now, now from Jabotinsky's statement where he said that the German Jews cannot influence us not to fight our enemy, it would appear that Wise was lying about the great wrong inflicted upon the German Jews. That, that those two statements, and they're both on the same side of this, of this Jewish, you know, inter-Jew debate, that they're both on the same side of this debate within Jewry, and their, their words are in conflict with one another. I mean, Jabotinsky makes lies out to be a liar, right? This amounts We've said again and again, Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. Well, well, of course it is, but it's amazing that they lie and contradict each other all the time and, and contradict the obvious truths, and, and, and they always get away with it. If you're the Jew Stalin and I'm the Jew Trotsky, you really can't trust me, so it's only a matter of time until you kill me or I move against you and kill you, but we both can't, run in the, we both can't rule the same country together. We can't be in the same government. Well, no doubt. That's how it is. Do you want to comment with this? All right, we left off on this amounted to nothing less than Weiss's followers without a mandate by German Jewry brazenly demanding that Germany should forget about her right of self-determination in favor of these foreign spokesmen representing world Jewry, an impossible and irresponsible attitude in terms of world politics. Weiss simply regarded the prevailing situation as a state of war. He looked on the Jews as being in the first trenches of the front. At the second preparative conference in Geneva in early September 1933, he stated, Once again, the Jewish people is called upon to suffer, for we are the suffering servants of humanity. They haven't begun to suffer. We are called upon to suffer that humanity and civilization may survive and may endure. We have suffered before. We are the eternal suffering servants of God, of that world history, which is world judgment. We do not rebel against the tragic role which we must play if only the nations of the earth may achieve some gain, may profit as a result of our sufferings, may realize in time the enormity of the danger they face and that common enemy of mankind, which has no other aim than to conquer and destroy. They're describing themselves. We are ready if only the precious and the beautiful things of life may survive. Do, do the Jews regard anything as precious and beautiful? Their art is disgusting. He got that idea right out of Mein Kampf, right? Because the Jews represent everything that's a caricature of evil and, and that's disgusting and grotesque and perverse in nature. Everything that's worthless and ugly is what they represent. Nothing precious and beautiful. Look at their art. Well, don't they say that art is an expression of the... Um, your, your innermost values, your virtues, your ideals, your soul. Look at their art. Their art is a, it's drivel. It's, you're just gazing into the mind of the devil. 
Absolutely. We are ready. Sorry. That's what it is. I agree. We are ready if only the precious and beautiful things of life may survive. That is once again the mission of the Jews. We stand on the front line in the first row of trenches. Uh, Until the first shot is fired in your master's tent. (laughs) Make it all for the supplies to sell to the enemy. Or the sell to a surplus store. Well, if the Jews are really concerned about things that are precious and beautiful, they should commit collective suicide, shouldn't they? Well, well, the whole thing they projected, right? But they projected that that, that that's that they're masters at that, right? Right. The, the Germans are the ones standing on the front line in the first row of trenches to hold back the Soviet Bolshevism. German suffering at the hands of the Jews began with, with the, um, the the Fifth Lateran Council. I, I mean, the, the the Jews through the papacy, their control of the papacy. Oh, well, I'm convinced it's a lot earlier than that. I believe that the slave traders who accompanied Caesar into Gaul, and then they, they, they crossed the Rhine with them. I can't prove it because I wasn't there, and records are sketchy and dicey. I right. suspect, though, from the descriptions given of the men that they were swarthy and had t- dark, curly black hair and hooked noses, and the Romans, they make it clear that these slave traders don't look like Romans. So I believe that the slave traders that accompanied Caesar's army into Gaul and purchased en masse hundreds of thousands of Gauls, they paid him a lump sum for all the Gauls captured in the Battle of Alasia. I believe those were Jews, and the German suffering at the hands of the Jews goes back to well before the, the rise of Christianity. Well, it could be, and I've always regretted that the Roman historians weren't more detailed about the um, the. the uh, about the nature of certain peoples and, and, and didn't take more care to identify them, but especially the usurers and the slave traders in, in ancient Rome and Athens and other places in the classical world. But it would be in keeping with the Jewish role in history that they are the history's greatest slave traffickers, traders, and peddlers. No doubt. And if they're not enslaving you with chains outright, they're enslaving you with a usury debt system. Wise did not present any concrete details concerning his wild accusations against the German government. Well, why would he? There, there weren't any to present. At least nothing of this kind has been published. There is, however, a striking similarity between this situation and the manner in which the question of war guilt is generally dealt with. Using all available technical and economic means of power, the other side's responsibility for the outbreak of war is simply classified as, quote, a well-established historical fact recognized by the whole world, end quote. So get on the bandwagon. The whole world knows it. If you don't know it, you're an idiot. Right. They they love to use things like that as propaganda tools to persuade you to their cause, regardless of the truth of of, of the statement. The whole world knew that the Iraqis were were, were um, ripping babies out of hospitals, right? Uh, I mean, the whole world knew that the Germans in World War One were throwing babies up in the air and and, and catching them on their bayonets, right? Right. The whole world knew that the um, Serbs were raping Albanians. They, they keep getting away with it. Well, no one's calling them on it, and who can call them on it? They're not going to call themselves on it. They're not going to call themselves on it, and they control the electronic media right from the beginning. 
And, and the average yeah, idiotic yeah, American yeah, turns that boob on or turns that radio on, and everything on there is gospel truth. Inclusive details are deliberately ignored, and there is a general pretense that everything has been proven a long time ago and that no further evidence is required. Well, just like Iran has nuclear weapons already, and if they don't, they're only six months away from developing them. The Jews have been saying that since 1980, that Iran is six months away from developing a bomb. Not now it's serious during chemical weapons, right? Well, if Iran is six months away from developing a bomb as of 1980, then I'd say they've already gotten there. But for the Jews, they don't require a shred of evidence. They just make the most r- r- ridiculous, absurd, baseless claim. They repeat it loudly enough and often enough, and there's no opposition. There's no mass media, mass disseminated opposition, so their claim is accepted as valid and genuine. All the time. The general ignorance and dependence of the broad masses are recklessly exploited while all kinds of accusations are made. And more rhetoric, the more rhetoric and crass, the better. Naturally, these accusations were always clothed in words aimed at benefiting mankind and in fighting slogans advocating the complete destruction of the vicious people branded in this manner thus avoiding all unnecessary debates, critical analyses, and objections. The Second Preparative Preparative World Jewish Conference, Geneva Conference, was concluded with the following resolution. The conference noted with deepest satisfaction that the Jewish people had spontaneously resorted to the one accessible weapon of self-defense against the new German regime, the moral and economic boycott. It affirmed that the Jews could not have any economic or other dealings with the Third Reich and express the hope that the boycott would be supported by millions of non-Jews in all lands. At the Third Preparative World Jewish Conference in Geneva, which was convened on August 20, 1934, Weiss declared, Our place is indubitably and unalterably in the ranks of those forces of civilization and freedom which cannot coexist with Nazism. We will survive Nazism unless we commit the inexpiable sin of bartering or trafficking with it. If we could survive, let us say, through our own, through our lifting the anti-Nazi boycott, we should morally have perished. Well, I'm sure he was probably dealing with them on the, um, on the quiet, wasn't he? On the side. Not going to pass up an opportunity for shekels, is he? He probably had stock, Chief Harbin. <laughs> Maybe he was selling them Zyklon B. Well, when he says that the forces of civilization and freedom, which cannot coexist with Nazism, what he really means is Jewish perversion and Bolshevism, which is the antithesis of civilization, which Nazism is trying to defend in advance. To the Jew, Nazism is an existential threat, isn't it? He can't survive in a society practicing National Socialism or Christianity or either of the two or both. Absolutely. Absolutely. If America were truly a practicing Christian nation, not just a nominally Christian nation, the Jews would all starve to death. They would all be in abject poverty, or or they wouldn't be here at all, right? They'd be in Mexico, where you belong. They wouldn't be making hundreds of billions of dollars selling porn, smut, operating, you know, um, pawn shops, cash for gold, payday loan places, usury banking, stock market speculation, real estate speculation. They'd all either be starving to death or they'd be on their way to Israel. 
I cannot believe how many cash for gold businesses there are in Bristol, Tennessee. There's only Jewish. That there's only forty thousand people in in Bristol, Virginia, and Tennessee, and and there's like there's like four thousand cash for gold. It's incredible. Uh, I've never seen anything like that. And it's absolutely Jewish. I, I bet every <laughs> single one of them. Let, let's put it this way. I grew up in North Jersey, the land of the Garden State. There's a rose and bloom on every street. There aren't half as many um, cash for gold places in all of New Jersey than are up here in, in Bristol. Prior to this, representatives of German Jewry had repeatedly and emphatically protested against this agitation by Weiss and others in the United States. For instance, the editors of a prominent Jewish newspaper in Hamburg had sent the following telegram as early as March 1933. German Jews accuse you and associates to be tools of outside political influences. Stop your senseless overrating of own international importance and lack of judgment. Damage largely those you pretend to want to protect. Better shut off your own limelight and useless meetings as surest means against anti-Semitism. This is your most important duty to repair your crimes against us. At a time when beginning from his access to power, I'd rather say ascension to power, on January 30th, 1933, Adolf Hitler had already provided for 2.2 million out of the 6 million jobless in Germany, and this obviously without rearmament, and had put an end to the chaotic conditions which had lasted for long years and which had often been deliberately engineered from abroad. When he introduced the Winter Relief Fund in early September 1933 and had the protection of the Catholic Church guaranteed in a Reich Concordat, September 10, in accordance with Rome's wishes, Untermeyer declared on September 10, 1933, in New York City in front of boycott activists, the day of reckoning is at hand. And we see Hitler cooperating with the Catholic Church. I, I mean, I don't really put my imprimatur on that, but... but he had insisted on good relations with both the Lutheran and Roman Catholic churches. He insisted that Christianity was the only sound moral groundwork for the people of Germany, and, and that the Christian institutions would be respected, preserved, advanced, and, and they were under, under National Socialist Germany for the entire tenure of, of, of the National Socialist regime. And and here we see the Jew the Jewish propaganda earlier from Samuel Untermeyer claiming that the church was being persecuted in Germany. And and, and it was blatant blatant lies. Blatant lies um designed to win the Goyal into their cause. Well, the Jews will eat their own, for lack of a better term. They'll, they'll throw their own into the fire in country A if it advances their interests across the world. And we've seen this time and time and time again. Absolutely. He says the day of reckoning is at hand. Jews are one to talk about a day of reckoning. They're owed a day of reckoning, and their day of reckoning is close at hand. It's coming. They're owed about six million days of reckoning. Twelve, if you want to count the, the, the Roman Holocaust in the first century. 
Personally, he had not lost any assets by the change of government in Germany, nor had he been granted even the slightest legitimacy by any representatives of the German Jews to make himself the mouthpiece of their presumed will. Radio talk shows, inspections of thousands of stores for German goods by feminist groups, demonstrations, and the opening of anti-German offices were rampant, particularly in the United States. In the solemn ceremony of September, on September 6, 1933, in New York City, Untermeyer called for Sherem, the Jewish ban on every boycott trader. Jabotinsky, of Polish and Russian origin, if they want to say that, meaning he's a Jew from the Polish quarter of the Russian Empire. Right. Uh, he's definitely a Jew. The founder of the Zionist revisionist organization, Irgun, Meanwhile, continued his hateful agitation and politics against Germany from East Europe. It is remarkable about this man that he had already fought on the British side against the Central Powers in World War I, settled down in Berlin in 1923 where he founded his movement, then again lived in Poland for some time, became the president of the New Zionist Organization in Vienna in 1933, and finally moved to London. He died in the United States in 1940. At any rate, when he published the following passages in Masha Rajets in January 1934. He did not do so with reference to any German crimes or to the Nuremberg Laws, for these were not promulgated until 18 months later. He wrote, quote, The fight against Germany has now been waged for months by every Jewish community, in every conference, in all labor unions, by every single Jew in the world. There are reasons for the assumption that our share in this fight is of general importance. We shall start a spiritual and material war of the whole world against Germany. Germany is striving to become once again a great nation and to recover her lost territories as well as her colonies. But our Jewish interests call for the complete destruction of Germany. The German people is a danger for us Jews, both collectively and individually. As the late General Leon de Grel so succinctly put it, Hitler was born at Versailles. The foreign-imposed conditions in Germany led to the rise of nationalism. The international boycott confirmed the suspicions of the German people. The National Socialist government represented the wishes of the majority of the people. And anybody in America or, or the rest of the world today, any white man or, or, or woman who continues to espouse the, the Jewish war propaganda and, and the Jewish positions on, on on National Socialism in the Second World War are basically still fighting that war against the Germans. Right, they're, basically, the Jews. they're basically still wars for the Jews. And, and they're still assisting the Jew in the Jewish war against white people everywhere. And Christians everywhere. No doubt. I don't think I've ever heard a Jew say the English people is a danger for us Jews, or Jewish interests call for the complete destruction of Britain. Well, well they would if Britain had ever stood up against a Jew, but instead now, well, well, probably the entire British nobility is now Jewish, and, and Jews basically have run Britain for a couple hundred years. Right. I, I don't know if I'd say all, but maybe 98, 99 percent. You might find some white nobles 
in the middle of nowhere in Scotland and Wales and in the forests of northwestern, northeastern England. But if I meet somebody and he tells me he's a baron, he's an earl, he's this or he's that, and he expects me to, you know, ooh and ah and give him all sorts of respect because he has a title, my first question is going to be, okay, so which of your ancestors are Jews? Or I'm okay, so are you Sephardic or Ashkenazi? Well, well, right, right, because of the, the extent that they've intermingled with them. I'd have more respect for an English um, dock worker or a Welsh coal miner than I would for a, an earl from the House of Lords. Well, well, I would pray because that's the Christian attitude. That, that's absolutely the Christian attitude because we, we should understand that the scum rises to the top. It always does. Okay, thank you for joining us here tonight. Thank you for joining me here tonight. And um, what we're going to end this here. In the weeks to follow, we will um, present more material from, from the early 30s National Socialist Germany from this period when the National Socialists were just coming to power. I hope to present um, something on, on, on the nature of the communists in, in the Weimar years and in the struggle between National Socialists and Communists for power in, in 1932 and 1933. I, I hope to do that soon. And someday in the coming months, what we're going to do a true seed line series and take that from the top of, of Genesis chapter 1 and, and walk that through Scripture. And I look forward to doing that. It's just a matter of... Um, getting my notes together in the way it was all to, to begin it. Because that's probably going to be a long series also. All right. Well, I look forward to doing all of that. Hopefully it'll... So, so, well, basically, we have two seed line at both ends of history. But because this study of National Socialist Germany is a study in, in, in um, the, the children of Jacob and, and, and the children of Esau, the children of, Ab of, of Seth and, and the children of Cain, it's the same study all over again. It's just at, at the opposite end of history. That's all. Well, hopefully we will put to rest a lot of the accusations and we'll correct a lot of the ignorance of those who are either hostile or just naive about National Socialism. I pray. That's the, that, that's the point here. I mean, the liars are always going to lie. We, we can't stop that, but... They're catching some of our people up with their lies, and some of our people are just naive, and they need to be educated, and that's what we're doing. Well, well, their lies should be exposed. I mean, that's our task, right? Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. I will be here next Friday with um, Acts chapter 14. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh.